listening to Redeemer Church of Denton's sermon audio. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit us online at RedeemerDenton.com. Well, we all have goals, right? Like everyone in this room has a goal of some sort and aim at something that you're looking to obtain. Some people, it might be some like measure of influence or or it might even be like financial. You wanna reach some sort of financial responsibility. It, It may just be to get to a point where you can retire or maybe once you've retired to spend a little bit more time with family or grandkids or kids or to travel the world like if you're young it might look different you might want to reach so many followers on instagram or grow that youtube channel you've been working on and putting in the hours streaming maybe you just want to get that one grade up and get that gpa up and get that scholarship or, or, or maybe you want to make the team or be your best time in running. It might not be on that big of a scale. It might be something smaller, like you just want to beat that one level on that video game. Uh, may, maybe it is uh, on a bigger scale. Maybe we set goals like you want to get married one day or have children. Some of you have a goal of making it through this sermon and getting to lunch, and that's Okay. We all have goals, right? We're hardwired to set goals, to chase after them and to to look and work towards and and grind towards something better than our current disposition. Like it's hardwired in us. We have this impulse in us. But have you ever thought about the goal of your faith? Like what is it trying to accomplish? What's it trying to obtain? Have you ever thought about your faith as actually uh, working towards accomplishing something? Maybe you've felt at times your faith get in the way of your goals. I know that's a reality for some people, but but to think that your faith is actually going somewhere. I think the Bible teaches us that we have a goal for our faith. I think the verses we're gonna look at today show us that we have a goal for our faith, that there's something that our faith can achieve, that it can attain or obtain. I think if you're in Christ, that it's actually something that, you're currently achieving. Right now, right here, your faith is at work reaching that goal that we all seek. And those are what we're gonna look at today. These verses that we're gonna look at show us that our faith reaches a goal through a very real experience of joy. We've been talking about joy for the last few weeks and uh, this week is no different. We're gonna press in even further into 1 Peter. And so if you have a Bible uh, with you this morning, if you'll open up to 1 Peter, if you don't, you can pull out your phone. We're not gonna judge you, that's okay. I don't think you're texting. If you are, don't. Um, Pull up 1 Peter chapter one. Chapter one, and we're gonna be in verse eight. If you guys will pray with me that God would speak in this moment and then we'll dive right in. Father God, we're here admitting that we need to hear a word from you this morning. That we, we need to hear you speak into whatever it is that everybody in this room is chasing after. 
the goals that we set, the things that we want to attain, the things that we uh, want to reach. Lord, those things are all for naught if we don't understand that faith in you is accomplishing something for us and that we can walk through that with an incredible, inexpressible joy. I pray that this morning that you would speak into this room, that you would remove attitude, distraction, anything that would keep us from hearing what you would say through your scriptures this morning. Help me get out of the way this morning that you might speak in a powerful way. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're actually going to start 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7, and we'll read through verse 9. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 8, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Last week we saw how grief and joy work together in the couple of verses before these. Uh, we, we saw how grief and joy work together, actually uh, not sequentially, like, okay, I'm walking through a season of grief for a time, and then I'll get over that and step into this moment of joy, but instead that grief and joy work together simultaneously to produce a result. That result is our faith proven true, paving the way for our praise and glory and honor. We saw in verse seven there. And we pin that up against the backdrop of a very real experience that we're going through as a body, as a church body now. When we, uh, we saw two members of our church step into that praise and honor and glory for eternity to be with Christ. And so that hit us even a little bit different last week. Grief and joy simultaneously. These things all centered around this statement at the start of verse 6 that said, In this you rejoice. So at the core of grief really is this joy, this active rejoicing that we're called to do. And that we are doing. And this week we're going to see how eternal joy actually obtains for us the outcome, verse 9 there, or the goal of our faith. How, how this joy and this faith carries us to the finish line. Verse 9, obtaining the outcome of your faith. I think there's three questions to ask here. First, what is the goal or what is the outcome that we're looking toward? Second, what is the vehicle or like the means to accomplish it? And third, how is it that it's accomplished? Or, or like, how is the, what, what's the fuel in this vehicle that gets us there to the goal? Like, what, what actually drives it? What's the manner in which we can accomplish this goal? First, what's the goal? Scripture could not be clearer here. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, 
namely the salvation of your souls. Right, like there's a, there's a deep-seated need that we all know within us that we need to be saved from something. That, that, we, that we need to be saved from this destiny that's, uh, that we are all headed towards death, right? And there's a, there's a deep-seated need to, to, to have a solution beyond just c- being comfortable for a little while. Or being as safe as we possibly can until one day death comes. Or having some sort of uh, sense of security, like nothing can touch us for a little bit. There's a deep-seated need for more than comfort, safety, and security. These all fall flat when, when confronted by our own mortality. This, this message actually would have been really fitting for Peter's audience here, right? Like I, I tried to unpack that a little bit last week, but First Peter has as its goal like trying to convince these elect exiles to step into what God has called them to in the face of persecution, Right, like when, when you're confronted with the reality that like I actually might be killed, like brothers and sisters in Afghanistan have been this week, like maybe not even might be, but really looking into the eyes of certainty that your death is coming and awaiting sooner than you would like or expect it to. There's a, a need, a sense that we all have within us that we need to be saved from something beyond just even our own mortality. It's an admission that there's more to this life than this life and that God has done something about it. It's the deepest need of everybody in this room, the salvation of your soul. It's the goal, whether you know it is or not this morning, that your soul be saved. And that there's something that might accomplish that goal. And so that's the second question. What, what is the means by which we accomplish it? I think verse 9 is really clear. It's the faith. It's, it's the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. More specifically, we saw last week that this faith was not in our own ability to accomplish anything, but our faith is in a person, namely Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like it all starts with Jesus. Our faith is in uh, the one who can save, a Savior, Jesus. And so what carries us there? What's the vehicle by which we accomplish salvation? It's faith. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, puts it this way, gives a definition of faith this way. Now faith is the assurance of all things, of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith is assurance. Faith is certainty. Faith is confidence. Faith is boldness in the midst of opposition. If uh, you'll forgive me for making up a word here, it's an unshakableness. It's a trust that God will, will carry the good work that he started in you to completion. It's a, it's a certainty deep down within us. And, and I know 
for some of us, it becomes kind of hard because we're walking through these moments every now and then where that certainty and that confidence, that assurance of things hoped for doesn't seem so real. And, and we start to wrestle with doubt. And I think we're going to get there here a little bit. I think actually these verses address that really powerfully. And so if you'll just uh, take a second, we'll talk about doubt here in a little bit. But the question is, how does this vehicle of faith that's carrying us to salvation, actually get going? How's it fueled? What drives this faith? What's behind it, pushing it forward to reach this goal of salvation for us? Verse 8 gives us three actions that fuel the vehicle of faith. And they all happen admitting the reality that we actually don't see this Jesus. But though we don't see him, Verse 8, we love him. And again, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. And so it's what's driving the faith is loving, believing, and rejoicing. Loving, believing, and rejoicing. I think in verse 8 here, these things are actually progressing. Like, like I, I think they're, they're building on each other. Like, I, I don't think there comes a point where you believe Jesus and who he is and who he claims to be without first loving him. I, I actually, I, I don't know if you get to a point of rejoicing fully, entirely in who he is without first believing in him. Like, I see these things progressing. I think uh, Peter is, is building these things out and that though we don't see Jesus, right? Like, nobody in this room has face-to-face seen Jesus in the way that Peter himself had when he had conversations with him, right? But, but though we don't see him, there ought to be a, a point at which we love him. And we're so compelled by that love and that relationship that we believe in what it is that he says, And then we're so uh, bought in and convinced with that conviction and that assurance that that, that we can't help but to rejoice in him. It's loving, believing, rejoicing. And so what we're going to do this morning, if uh, if you will with me, we're going to walk through each of these and what it looks like to love Jesus, what it looks like to believe in him, and what it means to rejoice. And so we'll start with love. We'll start with love. I don't know where you are here this morning. Maybe you're here and you already do love Jesus. And I think that's incredible. I I want you to fall more in love with Jesus. Like, we don't reach a capacity for love, right? Like, I don't look at my wife and say, uh, I'll never love you as much as our wedding day. Right? We, we married a, another couple in our church last night. Uh, Pastor Mike actually did the ceremony. It was incredible, and, and many of you guys got to actually be there as well. And, and, and we don't look at them in that moment. Pastor Mike did not see, say to them, hey, this is the peak. It's all downhill from here, right? Like, that's not how that works, right? No, we don't reach a capacity for love. Like, we want to we wanna fall deeper and deeper in love, with each other, my wife and I, and, and deeper and deeper in love with Jesus. I pray that you would love him more. Maybe you're here and you're just kind of like interested, like you know a little bit about Jesus, 
right? But you, but you don't love him. Like you haven't felt or, or experienced in you any sense of affection stirring up in you. Like you have a little bit of information and you're holding on to that and trying to make sense of it as much as you possibly can. But, but you haven't had those affections stirred. I pray that hearing about this Jesus stirs your affections a little bit this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not interested at all. Like you don't give a rip about this Jesus. You, your parents have dragged you here. You, you wish you weren't here. You're the one ready to go to lunch. Like that's fine. Uh, I, I pray that this morning God awakens you to see the love of Jesus. I, I pray that you feel the way that Jesus loves you. I pray that that softens a cold, hard heart in you to see whether you know it or not, you're hardwired in you to strive to obtain this goal of salvation. I don't know where you're at. Any of those three camps, somewhere in between, that's fine. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to walk through a couple of stories that I think just make me fall in love with Jesus. The Gospels are full of them. Like, read the Gospels. In a lot of ways, we have an opportunity to see a Jesus in the narratives of the Gospels that some of the disciples didn't even get to see. The first one, you can think about the love of Jesus and how he handles Nicodemus. John chapter 3, we got this man, Nick, He's my kind of guy, Nick, right? Like he comes to Jesus late at night. Nick comes up to him and he's like, man, it's, you know, sun's down. Everybody else is going to sleep. He's like, man, I got questions, right? Like, let, let's chop it up. I'm ready to go from, you know, it's 10 o'clock right now. Let's go till three. Like, I got questions, Jesus. Like, come on, let's go. Nick is my kind of guy. Jesus is probably like tired and exhausted, right? And, and, and he's like, let, let, let's go. He, Nick's just getting started, right? He comes up to Jesus, John chapter 3, and he says, I'm willing to admit that you came from God. Like, I, I, I'll do that. Jesus patient, but, but I have some other questions in here. Jesus patiently responds to him, but what you really need, Nick, is not just to admit that I come from God, but you actually need to be born again. And Nick asks a question, like all of us should in this instance, and goes like, how on earth can an old guy be born? Right? Like I already was. It was a long time ago. Like how can that happen? And Jesus says, by the water and by the spirit. Jesus tenderly says, like breathe, Nick. Like you didn't do anything to bring about your own first birth. Like, like God is the one who actually works out this second birth. God is the one at work doing the saving. God saves, God indwells by the Spirit, God rescues. Simply, Nicodemus just believe. And he turns to Nicodemus, this Jesus does, and he, and he turns and he says uh, those powerful words of John 3.16. I actually believe Jesus is speaking these words to Nicodemus. Uh, different commentators think different things. I think he's saying this directly to him. And he says, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. See that Jesus 
Or you can see the Jesus of the affection for children when his disciples and his closest friends come up to Jesus and they go, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus goes, already the disciples are like, he's looking past me, right? <laughs> and he goes, and he says he calls out to a child. And he sends for that child. And, and, and it says he put he put this kid in the midst of them, right? Like wiggly, hyper kid, right? Has no idea who this Jesus is or anything. Like not even probably a lot of reverence for who Jesus is. And he puts this kid in the middle of the whole group and he says to his disciples, turn and become like children. Humble yourself like children. And then he turns to him and he says, receive children. Right? Like we can fall in love with this Jesus who sees beyond our pride and arrogance to want to have some sort of status in the kingdom and instead looks at children and says, look, be like them. Or we can look at the way that Jesus dignifies women and outcasts. I'm thinking about the, the Samaritan woman at the well. Like there's so many different things going on here, right? Like Samaritan being on the outcast of society, uh, being like sort of an ethnic hybrid, if you will, or geographically like kind of uh, not really having a place to fit in. Even beyond that, being a woman in that culture, in, in that context, uh, somebody who uh, maybe is uh, not going to be respected in the ways that Jesus in eternity has seen women as image bearers of him. And he asks this woman for a drink. And Jesus sees through the status issues and through the cleanliness issues that we all have. Like, I wonder what diseases she has, or, oh, she comes from that place, or she looks like that. And he sees past all that, and he, he points towards eternity. He says, give me a drink. And he says, but the issue isn't actually the drink. The issue is that there's a living water that is more significant pointing towards eternity that satisfies more ultimately than this water from this well will right now. And he takes it further in this conversation with this woman. He says, do you have a husband? She says, no. And, and he says, trick question, I actually knew you didn't have a husband. He said, actually, you've had five husbands and the one that you have now is not your husband. We get this picture of a woman who's actually been likely used and abused, manipulated. And Jesus says, none of these things define you. You're looking for a place to worship. You feel out of place in this world as a Samaritan, nowhere to go. Where is it that I relate to God? Jesus says that her true worshipers will worship in the Father in spirit and in truth. And the Father is seeking people who will. And then this woman goes and takes this interaction with this Jesus to her town. And, and the scriptures say that many Samaritans from that town believed because of this woman's testimony. Like you want to talk about breaking down every barrier of people who have been used and abused and look different and don't fit in. And Jesus not only dignifies them, but uses them to magnify his glory in the town that she lives in. She fell in love with him. Every person in that town fell in love with him. They, they had their affections stirred up by the ability to see past 
what we in our sin see as foremost in people's lives. And then we can think about the love that Jesus displayed to that thief on the cross, right? Who's like, I'm hanging here justly. He actually says to one of the other thieves that, that claims that he should just, Jesus should just save himself and them. And that thief says, no, I'm, I did my thing. I'm here receiving my just reward. But this, Jesus, this guy hasn't done anything and he's hanging here next to me. And he, he does this incredible thing where he doesn't ask Jesus for help like the other criminal he doesn't ask Jesus to save him in that moment. He just asks to be remembered by this Jesus. In the simplicity of his faith, Jesus turns to him and says, truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Like we have to fall in love with this Jesus who in, the, in one sentence can usher somebody into the eternal kingdom of glory. Or Thomas's doubt when Thomas has heard that Jesus is actually resurrected and that uh, three days after being dead, he's actually alive. And Thomas gets word of this and he's like, I'm not buying it. Unless I see his hands, unless I see the marks and I put my finger in those marks, like I'm not gonna believe. Jesus wasn't in the room when Thomas said that. Eight days later, Jesus comes in the room and unprompted, Jesus says, fingers here. See that I'm real. See that I'm alive. See that, that, that I'm here and I love you, Thomas, though you doubted. And Thomas responds in love. Thomas responds and says, my Lord, my God, and runs up and hugs him. Unless we fall in love with this Jesus, we will not be driven to belief. Love him. Love him, love him. Let your affections be stirred by Jesus' patience, Jesus' humility, Jesus' hospitality, his resurrection, and love gives way to belief. Love gives way to belief. Though you, see, you do not see him now, you believe. How, the question is, how are we sustained even though we don't see this Jesus? Yeah, we can see him in the Gospels, but right in front of our faces right now, we don't see him. We trust and believe that one day we will, but we don't see him. And so how is it that we can be carried to belief? I think Jesus says something really powerful in John 16. In what's known as the farewell discourse, he sits with his disciples and he's kind of giving them some last teachings. And one of the most powerful things that Jesus says to them that, that we, we can look at now and say we relate to this. We're benefiting from this in a way the disciples never did is that Jesus actually says to his disciples, you will see me no longer. Right? Like he's admitting this reality. You, you're not going to see me any longer. But then Jesus says in John chapter 16, but it's to your benefit that I go. Because if I don't go, the helper's not going to come. And who is he referring to is the Holy Spirit there who's going to indwell believers, actually live inside of us in a way he's asking. We've talked about this in student ministry a lot. And I, I think I've talked to a lot of you in the church about this. Uh, Jesus is in, in essence asking in this moment, is it better that I'm in the room with you right now or that the Spirit who I'm one with, with the Father for all of eternity, is indwelling in you? 
Answer, it's to your benefit that I go. That the helper, the spirit is there stirring up in you belief. That you know with certainty, with assurance, with confidence that what Jesus has said and your affections for him have flown into true belief. Now, there's times, I'm admitting, when that doesn't always feel possible. Let's talk about doubt. I would wager that many people in this room are walking through maybe even seasons of doubt right now. I'm willing to bet that everybody in this room has dealt in some measure, whether small or large, in a time of crisis, a season of doubt. Whether you're there right now or whether you're moving past that or whether you've never really walked through that before, I think it's important that we talk about doubt. And I think there's a really important question. Is doubt helpful in the Christian life? Doubt oftentimes, I think I've seen this in an uptick in the last couple of years, doubt actually being celebrated as something courageous. Right, like somebody else in some of the Christian subculture that I really like to follow and, and uh, Christian poetry and hip-hop and these kinds of things, somebody else even in the last couple of weeks uh, said that they are not a Christian. And the reasoning given behind a lot of that is, well, I've been dealing with this doubt for a really long time. I just really wasn't ready to take that leap yet and say, I'm not a Christian, right? Like it was literal doubt that carried him past the bounds of Christianity in his mind. Now we can talk about those things and whether I think actually one day he's going to be called back to the faith. But in this season and cloud of doubt, I think we really need to be a type of church who thinks about these things rightly. And so is doubt helpful in the Christian life? I think the biblical answer here is that it's only helpful insofar as it brings us to an authentic reckoning with our own sin which Jesus died for. Does it cause us to wrestle with real things? Yes. Does it, does it cause us to, to actually uh, have to deal with the, the weight and the burden that this broken world affected by sin has on us? Uh, yes. But what I see in the scriptures is Jesus constantly calling his followers to belief, to belief, to belief. So whoever believes in him shall have eternal life and should not perish. Doubt is real. Make no mistake. But Jesus is not calling you to drown in it. He's saving you from it. And so the call for us, if you're walking through a season of doubt now, is to wrestle with those things, yes, but get to a point where you turn to belief in Jesus. There ought to be a point at which we come to some measure of confidence and assurance in who Jesus is. That's what he's accomplished for us when he turns to Thomas and says, put your finger here. Right? He touched the holes where the nails were. Doubt had no place in Thomas's mind at that moment. I don't think so. My Lord, my God, wrapped his arms around him. 
And this belief gives way to rejoicing. Verse 8. With joy, rejoice with joy inexpressible and filled with glory. It's a dangerous thing when you give a pastor or a preacher time to preach on something that says inexpressible, right? Like, how do you preach on something that's inexpressible? I'm going to give it a shot. If you know me, I'm a talker, so here we go. All right. If I'm defining joy in Peter's way here, I, I would say it, it's a happy feeling flowing from love and belief, okay? Now, I know uh, for some people in here, you're like, okay, like, um, but isn't there a distinction between happiness and joy? And uh, are we just talking about feelings? I, I think, like, from what I see in Scripture and from my own experience of this joy, I think it's a happy feeling flowing from that love of Jesus and that belief in who Jesus is. And maybe there is a distinction between happiness and joy. If you want to draw that line, fine. I just can't talk about something inexpressible and filled with glory without a smile on my face. Like, I can't do it. And so if you want to draw a distinction, a line there, like, cool. If, if it helps you to, uh, to say um, what he's talking about when he's saying joy here is the deeper things, like not just like a hope wish and a, a blind optimism, then cool. That's what I'm talking about, right? Like, I, I want that deep type of happiness. I want that deep joy. If it helps you to draw that line, fine. But make sure that there's a smile on your face. I think that's what he's calling his people here in 1 Peter to step into. Hey, persecution's coming your way. People are going to have blood on their minds. People are going to actually come after your life. And yet, though we don't see this Jesus, we're walking through with a smile on our face. Let's talk about this word inexpressible. We have other verses in the Bible that kind of get at this sort of an idea. They're incredible. Like, search the scriptures for verses like this. I, I love them. These are the verses that I'm talking about constantly. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 19 says, uh, We can know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. What? Right? We can know. The love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. How can you know something that surpasses all knowledge, right? Like it, it brings us to the limits of human or human capacities. Or Philippians 4, 6 through 7, right? Where it says, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything in prayer. Present your request to God. It says, so that the peace of God that surpasses all understanding might dwell in you. So the, 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 the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. There's something that we can experience that we can't necessarily give words to. Search the scriptures for words and passages like these. Oh my goodness. Inexpressible joy. Let's unpack it a little bit and we're going to do this in a way that kind of leads us into, I hope, an application and an outworking of what this looks like to have God's plan and design actually drive our delight. Inexpressible joy. The first thing, it has to be experienced. It has to be experienced, right? Like, have, have you ever, uh, uh, like, I, I can't explain to you guys what it's like to scuba dive or skydive. I don't know why I went, like, crashing into the earth or going below the earth, but that's okay. Like, I, I can't explain to you, like, what that experience is like. I, I haven't done it. But have you ever talked to somebody who has? 
They still can't quite explain it, right? Like they can't explain to you what that sensation is like, right? You've, you've, they've done it, they've experienced, they've lived it, but they can't really even communicate with words what it's like. You have to know it to your core, this joy. You have to feel it. You have to smile. You have to have walked through grief and losing someone, whether it's a parent or a child or a relative or a closest friend, and be able to smile at a funeral. You have to, you have to experience that. And when you, when you don't experience that, you've got to long for it. You have to desire it. That's this inexpressible joy. Number two, inexpressible joy. It can't be described or explained. Now you can talk about joy till you're blue in the face. Preachers do it all the time. I've heard so many boring sermons about joy, and a lot of you guys are thinking this is one of them. That's okay. I've heard so many boring sermons about joy just talking and talking about it, but never really seeing it on their faces, right? Let that not be said of us. You have to see it. I'm convinced that Denton County, where we believe God has planted us here purposefully for his glory to see other people come to this saving salvation in Jesus, they're going to come to Jesus by seeing love and belief on our faces through our joy. And there's going to be a couple opportunities this fall we've actually been talking about as a staff to actually get out in the community and make that happen. And so jump into those things. It can't be described or explained. People got to see it. Number three, it's foreign. Guys, this is so weird. And we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. It's strange. It's going to catch people off guard. People are going to be like, wait, why do they care about me? And we know it's because Jesus does. It's inexpressible because nobody's seen this type of love or this type of belief before the resurrection. Like before Jesus came, dead man for three days in the grave, no air, oxygen flowing through his lungs, three days later, raised to life. Like, and we shouldn't expect it to be anything else but foreign. Right, like dead man people don't live. Yet if we believe in Jesus, we believe that we are dead people redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus, empowered and fueled by the resurrection, and that's not gonna make sense to people first. It's weird. We're Bible-believing, gospel-driven weirdos full of glory for God's glory. Number four, it's unique. You can search for fulfilling this type of joy anywhere else. You won't find it. It won't last. Many of you have tried. It falls short. It's not going to satisfy. Yet this joy found in Jesus, it's available. And when you look for it, it will be found. And when you need to be satisfied, it will satisfy it's unique. There's nothing like it. And number five, it's just real. I, 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 don't, I don't have any other real way to unpack this than like, I, you have to trust, I've experienced it. 
And, and I pray you've experienced it. Like, have you rejoiced when, with an inexpressible joy this week? An inexpressible joy full of glory? Will you this next week? Will you rejoice with an inexpressible joy? Will that be driven by a, a love and affection for Jesus and a belief in who he says he is and the resurrection? And will you just smile? Like, this is just real. It's just real. And listen, that joy that's inexpressible and full of glory, it obtains the outcome or the goal of our faith. It's the salvation of our souls. And don't miss that. It's saying obtaining. It's doing that currently. It's doing that right now. Like in this moment, whenever we're rejoicing in who Jesus is, it's accomplishing for us right now the salvation of our souls. I pray that that would be the reality for you. I, I pray that you fall more in love with Jesus, that you trust more in belief in Jesus this morning, if you already do, if you do not. It's the goal that you've been looking for and striving toward your whole life. And I pray that it's accomplished in you through faith in Jesus this morning. If you got questions about that, like come talk to me, come talk to Pastor Josh. We're here. We want to work through these things with you. You can be a Nicodemus. I'll be here all day. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I, I know that it's so easy for us in today's world to to wallow in hurt and doubt and pain and shame and conflict. It's so easy to get sucked into this. And yet, you've called us to step into something entirely unique. It might make us stand out. In fact, it will. Lord, but I pray that that results not just in our salvation, but in the salvation of many other souls in Denton County. That it might result in the salvation of our children and grandchildren. That there might be a legacy of faith in who you are, in love and affection for you, and joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. Be glorified in our church and in our body this week. We pray and ask in Jesus' name. Amen.